0: Part five of Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. From the Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines by Mary Cowden Clark. Part five. The little Ophelia woke next morning from her healing sleep, revived, and quite herself. She was so free from the feverish symptoms which had so much alarmed her mother overnight that Udra thought she might venture to remove her at once to their home at Elsinore. The complete change proved the most beneficial thing that could have been devised. In the new scene to which she was introduced, the child acquired unwonted spirits. She gained more of the carelessness befitting her age. She lost that look of uneasiness and a resolution which had struck her mother so painfully at first. She seemed no longer oppressed by a vague solicitude and dread which had appeared to haunt her, and hang its weight on her spirits. The only time there was any trace in her of a recurrence to such impressions, was when there happened to be allusion made to her past existence. She appeared averse from speaking, or even thinking, of the period she had spent at the cottage. She never reverted to it of her own accord, never mentioned any of the names of her former associates, or recalled any circumstance that occurred among them. And her mother, perceiving how distasteful the subject was, took care never to revive it in her child's mind. It was avoided altogether, the Lady Udra only regretting that she had ever been compelled to leave her little one in what had evidently been so uncongenial a home. Her chief care was now to surround her child with none but pleasant, healthful influences, of person, scene, and circumstance. She kept her as much as possible in her own society and in that of her father, the Lord Polonius, whenever his court duties permitted him to be at home. Her young son Laertes was with them for a period, until the time should arrive for his going to the university. Meantime masters were engaged, and the children pursued their studies together, though the Lady Udra chiefly superintended those of her little girl herself. She appointed the one of her own women, to whom Ophelia seemed to have taken the greatest fancy, to the child's particular attendant. Gouda was a lively, good-tempered girl, and her cheerful companionship was one of the wholesome accessories by which the mother hoped to effect a removal of any sinister impression that might remain upon her child's spirits of bygone discomforts. The affection that now had full opportunity of taking its natural growth between father and child, contributed greatly to the happiness of Ophelia's new existence. Polonius became dotingly fond of his little girl, and she in turn reverenced him with all duteous affection. She would watch for his home-coming, soon getting to know the hours of his return from attendance at the palace, and then she would set his easy-chair and bring his slippers, and the furred gown for which he exchanged his court robes, when indulging in domestic ease and then he would pat her cheek or pass his hand over her fair young head and say some fondling words of rejoicing that he now possessed so pretty a living toy at home as his little daughter to beguile his leisure hours he was a good-natured man of a kindly disposition with much original shrewdness and a great deal of acquired worldly knowledge He was an odd compound of natural familiarity and assumed dignity, of affability and importance, of condescension and dictatorialness, of garrulous ease and ostentation. He was often jocular, and would twinkle his half-merry, half-astute eyes, rubbing his hands with a chuckling air of enjoyment, as if he had not a thought beyond the relish of the immediate jest. But some time after, as if willing to show that it was the mere momentary unbending of the great statesman, he would knit his brow, lean back in his chair, with his hand supporting his chin, and look meditative. He used a pompous enunciation for the most part. But occasionally his opinionated eagerness would run away with him, hurry him into forgetfulness of the main thread of his subject, until he was brought suddenly to a check—a pause from which he sought hasty refuge in the resumption of his didactic style. He was fond of parcelling out his speech into formal divisions, of putting forth his opinions and set phrases. He was full of precept, sententious in speech, and uttered his axioms in an authoritative voice. He spoke preceptively. He would talk to his wife in manner of an oration, clearing his voice and pausing a little as if to bespeak full attention ere he began. He liked to see those around him performing audience to his dicta he would address the guests at his table as if they were a committee or a board of council and harangue rather than converse he prided himself on great foresight and perspicacity he ordinarily prefaced with a hem and emphasized as he went on with one hand in the palm of the other or by reckoning off each clause successively on his fingers he collected attention by canvassing glances, gathered it in by sharp espial upon those in whom he perceived symptoms of its straying, and kept it from wandering by a short admonitory cough. He was accustomed to ask, in a triumphant tone, when any prediction of his was ever known to fail in being verified by the event. He affected diplomacy and expediency in action, mystery in expression, craft and device, He had a habit of laying artful schemes in conversation, for entrapping those about him into betrayals of characteristics, such as he described to them, and then would exult in the proofs of his accurate judgment. You see? What did I say? He piqued himself on ingenuity encompassing his ends, and in their accomplishment preferred contrivance and cunning to the commonplace means of straightforward procedure. Policy was his rule of action, statesmanship his glory of ambition. He would complain of the fatigues of office, of the onerous demands of a court life, of the cares of government, but secretly, official dignities, a courtier's existence, and ministerial power formed the sum of his desires. His wife, the Lady Udra, understood his character well. But both her affection for the good qualities he possessed, and her conjugal duty, taught her to acquiesce in his peculiarities, forbearing to show any unmeet consciousness of them. She would gravely listen when he told her of some deep-laid plot he had, for bringing about what she, in her singleness of mind, thought might have been effected by much simpler means. She heard in silence, yet with attentive sympathy, his plans of ambition, his projects for advancement, and she took active interest in his schemes for the national welfare, even when she felt them to be more subtly devised than practically applicable. But she could not forbear smiling though to herself only when she saw him carry this system of policy into his domestic sway when she saw him exercise his authority as husband father and master by a sort of trick when she found him securing her wifely obedience that obedience which would have been spontaneously yielded without inducement by management and winning artifices When she found him governing his children, ruling his household, regulating his affairs, nay ordering his servants by a calculated method of stratagem, she could do no other than smile. Beyond all else that provoked her smile was to see how the innocence of childhood, the unconscious simplicity of his young son and daughter set at naught the diplomatist's skill, frustrated and rendered null his intrigues by an ingenuous look or word. Instead of openly forbidding or reprehending certain deeds, he would lay snares for discovering whether they had been committed, and while the process was going on, his penetration was baffled by the artless behaviour of the children. His guile was futile against their candour, and was more frequently proved at fault than they. His sagacity was always aiming at detection, where no delinquency existed, ever bent on discovering some concealment where there was nothing to conceal. It was almost comic to see the searching frown he would bend on one of those clear open countenances, held up to him in confident unreserve, conscious of no shadow of blame. The questioning eye, the shrewd glance, the artfully put enquiry, seemed absurd, directed against such transparent honesty. In consequence of this system of their fathers, his praise was sometimes as mysterious and unexpected to the young Laertes and Ophelia as his reproof. On one occasion he called them to him, and commended them highly for never having been into a certain gallery which he had built out into his garden, for the reception of some pictures, bequeathed to him by a French nobleman, a friend of his, lately dead. Seeing a look of surprise on their faces, he added, Ah! you marvel how I came to know so certainly that you never went in! but I have methods deep and sure—a little bird or my little finger. In few you need not assure me that you never entered that gallery, for I happen to be aware beyond a doubt that you never did, and I applaud your discretion." "'But we did go in,' said Ophelia. "'What child Pooh, impossible come to me, look me full in the face!' Not that she looked down or aside or anything but straight at him, but he always used this phrase conventionally when he conducted an examination. I tell you, you never went into that gallery, I know it for a fact. There is no use in attempting to deceive your father. I should have discovered it had you gone into that room without my permission." "'But did you not wish us to go there? I never knew you forbade it,' said Laertes. "'If we had known you had any objection, neither Ophelia nor I would have. I never forbade it, certainly,' interrupted his father. "'But I had strong reasons for wishing you should not go into the room till the pictures were hung. You might have injured them.' No, no, I knew better than to let heedless children play there, so I took means to prevent your entering the gallery without my knowledge." "'But we did play there, every day, father,' said Laertes. "'Yes,' said Ophelia. "'And I tell you, impossible. Listen to me, I fastened a hair across the entrance. The invisible barrier is yet unbroken. So that you see. You could not have passed through that door without my knowledge.' "'But we didn't go through the door, papa. We got in at the window.' exclaimed both the children we didn't know you wished us not to play there so finding a space which the builders had left in one of the windows that look into the garden we used to creep in there and amuse ourselves with looking at the new pictures we did no harm only admired time went on laertes was now a tall stripling was sent to paris then famous as a seat of learning the motives which swayed polonius in the choice of the university to which he decided upon sending his son were characteristic He owned to his wife that he should have preferred sending the youth to Wittenberg, where the king's son was a student. Such an opportunity for intimacy with the prince being a great temptation. But there was a certain personage, highly influential with the court of France, who had exacted a promise from him that Laertes should be educated at the University of Paris, and as it was of the utmost importance that the friendly relations with France which he had established during the period of his embassage there should be carefully maintained, he resolved that nothing should interfere with his son's being placed at college in that country. Ophelia grew into delicate girlhood—ever quiet ever diffident, in her retiring gentleness and modesty, but serene and happy—a tranquil spirited maiden, unexacting, even-tempered, affectionate—one of those upon whom the eyes and hearts of all near dwell with a feeling of repose. Her father now began to look forward to his long-cherished hope of introducing her at court, where he beheld her already attracting his sovereign's gracious notice, and winning the favour of the queen. He imparted his views to his wife adding that all Ophelia wanted was a little forming in manner to render her presentable, and to that end, he intended cultivating for her the acquaintance of a young lady, daughter to a friend of his, the Lord Cornelius. Udra ventured the pardonable motherly remark, that their young Ophelia was perfectly well-bred, a gentlewoman in every particular. An air of nobility distinguishes her mien, and the look of unruffled content in the blue depths of those violet eyes, revealing the sweet placidity of her nature, gives a crowning grace of self-possession and ease that might become a princess. If a court atmosphere if the royal presence be our child's destiny, she seems fitted for them by nature. Ay, ay, by nature, but art may do somewhat, art may do much polish, refinement, a conventional breeding in manner, an air of the world, are attained only by associating with those accustomed to move in courtly circles. The Lady Thyra, daughter to my friend Cornelius, having lost her mother when quite a child, has been early habituated to receive guests, to preside over her father's establishment, in few to enact betimes the centre of a distinguishable circle. To promote a friendship between this young lady and our daughter will be to place Ophelia beneath fittest tutelage, in the very school to form her for the future station she will fill." Is this young lady Thyra, unrestricted in her proceedings, choosing her own associates, complete mistress of her conduct in herself, quite the best associate, think you, my lord, for our daughter? May there not be risk as well as advantage in the companionship?" What but advantage can there be, good my lady? The Lord Cornelius enjoys the royal confidence. He will rise to highest honours in the State. I foresee, trust this brain of mine, I foresee, I say, that when an envoy to Norway shall be needed, he Uh, will—but no matter. Where was I? Oh! His wealth is ample, and he allows his daughter well-nigh unlimited command of his means and fortune. What more would you have?" Uh, No more. Nay, not so much. Her power, her position, I doubt not—tis herself, I mean. Is she—' "'Tut, tut, lady mine,' interrupted Udras' husband, with a wave of the hand, which she well knew to be of final significancy. "'She is in all respects what I could best wish for my girl's friend. The Lord Cornelius is as anxious as myself for the improvement of the acquaintance. And it is my will that henceforth the family shall be intimate. Let it be looked to. My coach shall be ordered forthwith, my lord. I will wait upon the young lady with our daughter without delay, since such is your wish," said the lady-wife dutiously, adding to herself, "'I will hope that it is no more than a mother's anxiety which makes me see a groundless fear in this friendship. The lady Thyra may be all that I could desire in heart and mind for my Ophelia's associate. At all events I shall now see her myself, and judge.'" As far as judgment could be formed in a first visit, all that Udra saw of cornelius's daughter that morning led her to rejoice that so pleasant an intimacy as this promised to be should have been begun the young lady was evidently the petted child of a proud father who knew not how to refuse her anything but this indulgence did not seem to have spoiled her and that alone spoke greatly in favour of her natural disposition. She was neither imperious nor wilful. There was none of the insolence in manner or impatience of control which might have been generated by such a course as hers of irresponsible self-government. She received the Lady Oger with much gentle grace, and with a tone of respect in her welcome, which showed that having been so long her own mistress, had not destroyed that deference which youth owes to superiority of age and experience she was sprightly without hardness she was easy without forwardness she was self-possessed without a spark of self-conceit in her demeanour there was a tone of good-breeding in her every word and gesture which showed that she was accustomed to much society but there was that in her manner which bespoke goodness of heart as well as courtesy of tongue there was an unrestrained freedom in her mode of speech which told plainly how habituated she was to the expression of her opinions and feelings before numbers But there was something also that revealed how little need there was for reserve in any of her thoughts or sentiments. She was obviously kind-natured as well as complacent, affectionate as well as affable, amiable as well as polite. As for Ophelia, she was charmed with her, and the young lady Thyra seemed no less won by the modest sweetness of Udra's daughter. A mutual and strong attraction at once subsisted between the two girls, and after their first introduction to each other, They became as rapidly and completely intimate as the fathers could have desired. Soon no morning was spent apart, and Thyra, intent upon enjoying her new friend's society uninterruptedly, made a point of receiving Ophelia alone, and of appointing her usual visitors in the evening only, henceforward. She could assume a pretty tyranny, a kind of playful despotism, when she chose. It sat well on her, and her friends submitted to it, well pleased, as only another grace in the graceful Thyra there was so much of feminine elegance in what she did and said that it seemed her natural prerogative to have all yield to her she was not wilful but she liked to have her own way and it was so pleasantly asserted so inoffensively insisted on that no one dreamed of denying it her she was so winning while she dictated, so obliging in the midst of her exactions, so really thoughtful of the feelings of others, while she affected to be thinking only of her own, so truly kind, while so pretendedly selfish, that all loved to obey her behests. And indeed, it was generally found in the end, that they were prompted by a consideration for the general pleasure, as well as for hers in particular you know sweet friend we could not find the way to each other's hearts were we to meet in a crowd every day instead of thus familiarly unrestrainedly doing and saying exactly what we please while together as we do now do we not said she to Ophelia as they sat together in Thyra's pleasant room, her own peculiar room, which was fitted up with every graceful luxury a young girl's taste could suggest in its adornment. And looking out as it did upon the gardens by which her father's mansion was surrounded, its windows shadowed with trees and flowering climbers, it was in all respects the ideal of a lady's bower besides i mean you to know something of the people you will meet before you come among them since you have owned to me with that charming simplicity and frankness of yours that you feel some awe at the thought of encountering strangers i have so little seen of strange faces said ophelia my father's guests are chiefly men high in office counsellors of state grave and dignified personages And my dear mother, thinking one so young could not as yet derive advantage from their conversation, allowed me to keep our own apartments when there were visitors. You shall hear all about mine ere you are introduced, and then they will be no strangers to you when you see them. You will be acquainted with them beforehand, and it is a great advantage, let me tell you, to have this key—knowledge of the character—previously to looking upon the face those who have none of your novice modesty would often be fain to get possession of such a treasure as this same key is it quite fair that i should have the advantage you speak of thyra never fear thou dear scrupulous novice those very people could they know that their characters have been discussed would be the best pleased so that we are but thought of, talked of, our self-esteem is satisfied. To be unnoticed, to be of such insignificance as to be left uncriticised, that is the sting most difficult for human pride to endure." "'Then pray indulge them and me by some of your strictures,' said Ophelia, smiling. "'Let us hear what biting things your amount of malice can allow itself to utter. And yet your lip slanders itself if it be a slanderer of others.' Nay, no slander, truth, nothing but truth. Come, with whom shall I begin? Methinks I'll commence at once with the Highest, and so get the most dangerous part of my task dispatched first. Our Sovereign and his Queen have honoured my father's house with their presence. But I may not, of course, count their Majesties among my visitors. The King's brother, however, Lord Claudius, is not an unfrequent guest here, and he— You have been presented to their Majesties? You know the King's person?—The Queen's?—Tell me somewhat of them." The King is a grave-looking man, warlike and noble in his bearing, full of dignity and command, and looks, as indeed he is, the accomplished soldier and ruler. The Queen is very beautiful, both in face and person, graciously condescending in the kind notice, and encouragement she accorded to myself, a young girl undergoing her first presentation. And what of the Prince—their son, Lord Hamlet?—I have heard my father speak of him as a student of great repute. He says that he has won high academic honours, and that if he were not of royal birth, he could make himself illustrious as a man of learning." "'Nay, he's even too much of the scholar for my taste,' said the lively Thyra. He has dark reflective eyes, which would be beautiful, but that he allows them to become absorbed in musing and speculation, instead of letting them discourse agreeable things. He has a handsome mouth, which he resigns to a meditative idleness when he might give it its natural action in pleasant converse. He is thoughtful when he should be amusing. He is absent when I want him to be attending to what I say, or to be inventing something to say to me. All this is owing to his studious habit, which, moreover, will, if he don't take care, spoil his figure, for he is inclined to fat, and a fat gentleman, thou knowest, even though he be a prince, can never form a lady's ideal of a man. What sort of man must he be, to embody Thyra's idea of manly perfection?" said her young friend. "'Nay, I cannot tell—not I,' replied Thyra, with a momentary embarrassment. Then recovering herself, she went on,—'Not such a man as my lord Claudius, assuredly. He comes next to tell thee of. There's something marvellously unattractive to me about that lord. Though he be of blood-royal, he looks not noble. And though his lineage be high, he hath not lofty in his mien. And yet I cannot tell what ails me that I should not approve him. He is full of suavity, and is assiduous in his courtesies and attentions. But they are too much on demand to seem very spontaneous. You shall catch him gnawing the hilt of his dagger in moody silence, and the next instant shall see him all smiles and ready adulation. His face changes too voluntary sudden for sincerity. He'll shift you his manner from sad brow to jesting, from abstracted to attentive at a moment's bidding. I never feel at ease in his company, and care not if he never came here again. But my father considers the visits of the King's brother an honour to our house, and so I receive him with as good a grace as I can muster." Thyra, like a good daughter, makes her own inclining spend to those of her father," said Ophelia. "'You give me too much credit for filial submission, I fear returned she, with a slight blush and a laugh.—My father has hitherto given such free course to my likings, that I can scarcely think he would wish me to fashion them by his. And yet, I know not. She paused, then resumed.— There is the Lord Voltamond, But he is my father's friend, not mine. His forty-odd years, and his wise head, claim affinity with sager maturity than I can boast. He is no associate for my giddy self. Then there are Marcellus and Bernardo, two young officers of the King's guard—true soldiers, light-hearted, pleasant rattlepates, with more valour than knowledge, more animal spirits than mental acquirement, but with all very agreeable companions, and their uniforms are a great help to make my saloon look bright and gay. You tell me chiefly of your gentlemen guests. Have you no ladies among your visitors, dear Thyra?" Ay, true, there's no lack of ladies to make our parties complete," said Thyra. But one court lady is so like another court lady, that as I was giving you an insight into the character of the people you will meet, I naturally left out those who seldom can boast of much distinctive feature in that kind. But I am waxing impertinent, methinks. There are, in good sadness, some sweet women among our lady friends. But thou wilt find out those for thyself. They are not among the formidable strangers I had to tell thee of. Let me see, who else? Oh, aye, there are Osric of Stolzburg and Eric of Cronstein, two lords whose estates adjoin that of my father. You will often meet them here." Are they of the formidable class I may expect to see? asked Ophelia. Truly, I know not why I class them together, for they differ in every particular, save in being provincial neighbours of ours. When we are in the country they are our constant guests. But the one is a youth, the other is a man, the one is boyish, the other manly. The one has mature ideas, the other no ideas at all. The young lord of Stolzburg is a coxcomb, while the lord of Kronstein is—is—well, perhaps something very nearly ideal we spoke of ere now." Thyra paused a moment with a little conscious laugh, while she stole a glance at Ophelia's face. But she saw it looking so quiet, so girl-like innocent, that she went on. Perhaps it is from the contrast between these two lords that the one appears to me so greatly above the other. It is not every one who finds Cronstein so gifted, or Stolzberg so inane. One great advantage in public esteem, the latter possesses over the former, which is that his domains are extensive, his land unencumbered, his positions exclusively within his own power, while the other lord has a magnificence of taste, which has led to rather a profuse expenditure, and it is whispered that his estates are deeply mortgaged. This report has blunted worldly judgment, and dulled the edge of its discrimination, in awarding the palm of merit between the two. General opinion, lackeys, the rich lordling, and can scarcely allow the personal desert of the accomplished but acre-dipped Kronstein. Certain it is that my father and I differ widely in our estimate of their respective attractions. He favours the one, while I—while you judge the lord of Kronstein to be the superior man, however he may be the poor lord said Ophelia, simply, filling up the pause in her friend's speech. "'Yes, dear novice,' rejoined Thyra, with another smile and shy glance at the quiet, unconscious face. "'I must call thee novice, dear Ophelia. Thou seem'st to me so nun like new to all worldly thoughts and ideas. Thou art a very child still, I do believe, though that grave face and sedate air of thine make thee seem a woman. I'll wager now, thou hast scarce obtained the dignity of teens.' You guess my age accurately, dear Thyra. I have scarce seen years enough to give me a claim to equality of friendship with you, who must be well-nigh half a dozen summers riper in wisdom than I, but I can make up in loving respect for thee what I lack in befitting qualities to give me claim upon thy liking. We will love and confide in each other entirely as friends should. And be of all the greater mutual benefit for what there is dissimilar between us," said Thyra. My social experience shall help you in learning to face strangers, and thy novice candour shall teach me the beauty of unworldliness. Let me commence the lessons I am to give by initiating you in the mysteries of chess, now the most fashionable of games." Is it so much played? I knew you were fond of it, for I see the board stand ever ready, but I knew not it was in general favour. Yes for some time it was banished from court after that fatal game famous in our danish chronicles when the sovereign dynasty was changed by a choleric blow with a chessboard but of late the taste has revived and the game is pursued with greater zest than ever we have some skilful players amongst us the lord of kronstein is masterful at it he was my instructor when we were last at my father's country seat of rosenheim we played together daily then you are doubtless now a well-skilled player yourself, dear Thyra. I fear you will find me an unhopeful scholar," said Ophelia. You are ingenuous, you are artless, you are unsuspicious, dear girl," said Thyra, looking at her earnestly with affectionate admiration. And those seem unpromising qualities for attaining proficiency in a game where stratagem and connivance are main requisites. But vigilance, patience, are also wanted, and these you have for certain. Your noticing that my chess-board is always at hand bespeaks an observant eye, and watchfulness may secure success, when over-eager craft rushes into the jaws of an unespied checkmate. But come, let us begin." At this moment an attendant entered. "'I can see no visitors to-day,' Thyra said impatiently, as she ranged the pieces on the board, signing to the servant to withdraw. "'See that I am denied to every one, and say that I receive this evening.' I stated such to be your ladyship's orders said the attendant. But my lord would take no refusal. He bade me carry up his name, and beseech that your ladyship would see him, for that he hath news which— Then why dost not announce his name, Sirrah interrupted the young lady. Who is it? The Lord Eric of Cronstein, madam, was the reply. The colour flushed into Thyra's face, but she said in a composed voice—that composure and command of voice which courtly breeding teaches—'Give entrance to my lord of Kronstein, He doubtless brings intelligence from Rosenheim—from my father." Then as the servant quitted the room, she added, "'I make an exception in this visitor's favour, dear Ophelia, because I think thou wilt feel curiosity to see one of whom we have been speaking so much.' "'Your report was too favourable not to induce a wish to know him,' replied she. "'I shall be glad—' "'He is here,' said Thyra. Her manner showed so much agitation, so involuntary a delight, such blushing joy, that it could not have failed betraying her secret to one more versed in such tell-tale symptoms than her young companion. But Ophelia perceived in it only the pleasure and animation with which a friend preferred to others, for his estimable qualities would naturally be welcomed. Besides, her attention was principally engaged by the new-comer. Not only did the description she had recently heard cause her to look at him with interest, but there was something in his appearance which struck her with a singular impression, as of something remembered, something long since seen. She continued to gaze upon the face and figure as though they were a pictured image of some shadow in her memory. So complete was this effect of his appearance upon her, that she kept her eyes fixed upon him with almost as unreserved a regard as if he had indeed been a portrait, instead of a living man. For him he was too much engrossed by the greetings that took place between himself and Thyra, to perceive the attention with which the young lady's stranger was looking at him. Presently, however, her friend, recollecting her duty as hostess, performed the ceremony of introduction. He bowed courteously, and was about to resume his conversation, when something in the cursory glance he had bestowed upon Ophelia seemed to strike him also with a vague sense of recollection. He hesitated, looked at her but seeming to obtain no confirmation of his passing fancy from what he saw, upon this second view of the tall slight figure before him, he went on with what he was saying to the Lady Thyra. He asked after all their mutual town acquaintance, told her how dull Rosenheim had appeared after she had left it for Elsinore, but said that he had made a point of paying his duty there regularly to the Lord Cornelius, who had charged him with loving messages for his daughter, on hearing that he was about to ride to the metropolis. My lord your father desired me to say that he trusts many days will not elapse ere he joins you here in Elsinore. But meantime, as I am returning to Rosenheim, he bade me ask you for a packet of papers, which—'You return to Rosenheim, my lord? When? How soon?' was Thyra's hurried enquiry. "'Immediately. I am compelled—indeed I must—my presence just now is indispensable at my own poor place,' he said, in reply to the mute reproach conveyed by her eyes and by the tone of her voice but it will not be so for any time the estate ere long reverts incontestably to he paused in the low-toned but eager explanation he was pouring forth but thyra seemed satisfied with these few broken words for adverting to the packet he had mentioned she said but these papers my father requires my lord did he say where they were to be found He bade me tell you you would find them in the ebon cabinet by his study-chair, lady. This sealed packet with which he charged me for you contains the key, together with more precise directions, for your guidance." "'I will seek them at once, my lord, since your return must needs be immediate. But remember,' she added, with a resumption of vivacity, "'your friends in Elsinore will look eagerly for your coming soon among them again. Your stay at Rosenheim must be brief as may be.' My own wishes will limit its duration to the shortest possible span, believe me, lady. They abide in Elsinore, even while necessity chains myself elsewhere." His eyes followed her, as she withdrew to fetch the packet, and when she disappeared, he turned in an abstracted manner to the table on which the chessboard stood, and played mechanically with one of the pieces, twirling it round and round upon its circular foot. Suddenly he seemed to remember that he was not alone, and that he owed some courtesy of attention to the young lady who sat there so silent and so still. He was about to address her with some slight remark, when upon raising his eyes towards her he found hers fixed upon his face. Her look was so steadfast that it perplexed the gentleman, man of the world as he was, he took up the chess-man and idled with it against his lip, in embarrassment of which he himself hardly understood the source. A slight incident will sometimes prompt a struggling memory, while vainly striving to help itself by recalling more important clues. The form of the ivory piece caught Ophelia's eye, and suddenly she exclaimed, The knight, the white horse, I remember, the wood, Lord Eric, ay, that was the name, I recollect it now, it was you then who-Hush! Can it be possible? was the hasty exclamation as he looked round to see that no one was near. Steth," he muttered, the unopened rosebud by all that's strange! How came she here! How came she to be there! "'You never returned, after Jutha became so altered, so ill! You never knew that she died!' The lip blanched to well nigh the whiteness of the chessman that had lately touched it. "'I knew you would be sorry for her when you came to hear of it. You were kind to her. You liked her. Poor Jutha!' be silent, I conjure you, young lady. Do not speak that name again. It can do no good. It may do fearful harm. Mischief, misery, more evil than you can conceive or ever could repair." He looked round again, in great agitation and anxiety. Do not name her here, I entreat—I implore— His manner, so earnest in its hurried supplication, had its effect upon Ophelia. But she answered in her own quiet way. I have never mentioned her. She is unknown here. She had almost faded from my own thought as had your face and person. I hardly remembered you. I was a little child then—at nurse in that remote country place." Her ingenuous look, her simple unconsciousness, as she spoke, plainly told the man of the world that this innocent girl had no suspicion of the share he had had in the unhappy Jutha's fate. His dark secret was safe. Could he but hope that she would never revive his victim's name, never repeat the tale of his forest visits, to others more clear-sighted? more experienced than herself. He summoned all his address to his aid. He told Ophelia how she herself had grown out of his knowledge, that he should not have recognized the little rustic she then appeared in the beautiful maiden, the young lady of noble birth and distinguished heir, whom he at present beheld. He added some flattering allusion to her family, said that her father, the Lord Polonius, was known to him by reputation, as a statesman whose services were of the highest value to his country and concluded, by adroitly making it his request, that she would never allude to any circumstances of their former meeting, as it was important to him, for reasons which he could not immediately explain, that he should not appear to be already known to her. Before Ophelia could well signify her acquiescence with his wish, Thyra reappeared. Eric of Kronstein tarried not long after he had received the packet from her hands. Promising to deliver it faithfully and speedily, he took a graceful leave of the two young ladies, and withdrew. They both remained silent for a considerable space, each occupied with her own thoughts. Then Thyra, rousing herself from her reverie, said, Forgive me, sweet friend, that I am such dull company. So ill fulfil my part of your hostess and entertainer. Come, now, for our first study of chess. End of Part 5